Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Oh, I can hear a bit of crackling from someone. I think it's Joel. Joel, is it you? That could be, that might have been me. Joel, you mustn't crackle. Put your crisps away. (laughs) (laughs) I I will, yeah, I'll mute now and return to my frazzles. All right, pal. Oh, frazzles! Are you joking? No, I'm joking. (laughs) I am joking, sadly. I love frazzles, but Dolly, you're vegetarian. You can eat them. It's not, it's not real bacon. Don't go bacon in my heart. My God! Sorry, I'm not even recording the highlight. Like, yeah. I've I've got all of this on tape. If you want to use any of it, just so you know. <laughs> Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Speaking of frazzles, will it gross you out to know that I ate sushi for breakfast this morning? Or is that quite chic? Fine line. Not at all. I think that's a good nutritious breakfast. Is it a bit gross if you know they were leftovers from Sainsbury's or are we still okay? We're still okay. A dish that I would like to pay some dues to, well-earned dues to uh, at this moment, is the kedgeree that you can only find in the Gatwick Wagamama. I do find it quite strange that Kedgeri is a breakfast, fish pie for breakfast. <laughs> it's just called Kedgeri instead of fish pie. Think about it, it's good for breakfast. Rice, fish, protein, carbs, no judgment from me. I think that sounds delicious. I'll tell you what, there's someone else who's been you know, really loading up on fish. And do you know who that is? No. The fattest bear of the year. <laughs> A bear the weight of eight men has been given the title this month. Named 747, he was £1,400 in weight and saw off 11 other challenges to win the award, which is presented at Alaska's Katmai National Park. So he's only the fattest bear this year? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how they scout for this as well. It's not like, you know, America's Next Top Model or Pop Idol or any other... You know, what do they do? Do they comb the forests of the world to go find all the contenders? I don't think so. So maybe it's just bears in the local area. Or the bear sanctuaries are in friendly competition with one another. So they keep each other up to date on bear weights. Yes, I think that that could be correct. Have you got any of those charming old news stories that you like to uncover from the Internet a decade later? I feel like I need some of those today to warm my bones. No, but I do have some actual breaking news that will warm your bones, heart, every organ in your body. And I'm going to send you an email now with some pictures, Panda, to look at as I tell you that a rare green puppy called Pistachio has been born in Italy. Italian farmer Christian Melocci was surprised when his dog (laughs) Spellaccia gave birth to a puppy with green fur. Are you looking at the pictures? It's so cute, isn't it? Actually green. How do you get a green puppy born? 
It looks like a little like green Furby lamb. It's so cute. Do they think it's got like some sort of um, toxin in its fur or something that reacted during birth? They said it's this very rare thing. So he was born as a as part of a five dog litter uh, on the island of Sardinia. Pistachio's brothers and sisters all had white fur, which is the same color as the mother. Um, but they believe that the green fur is a result of the puppy making contact with a green pigment called bilividin while in the womb. And I don't know why, but when I read this sentence, it made me cry. Mr. Malocci has decided to give away all the puppies apart from Pistachio, who will help him herd sheep on the farm. Of course he will, that colour. Don't you think that's so moving? It feels like the plot of a Disney film. It says so much about how it's good to be different. And, you know, the literal green underdog. I just can't, I just, I, I honestly feel like I'm going to cry again. <laughs> it does sound like a Disney movie. You're absolutely right. We'll put that picture on the Hilo's Twitter and I will also print it out and frame it mounted for Dolly for Christmas. <laughs> Something that warmed my bones this week, have you heard about this, is Matthew McConaughey's new memoir, Green Lights. Oh yes, I haven't read it, but I've got a WTF episode queued up that I'm going to listen to today with Mark Maron. And I've heard that Mark Maron gives him a pretty hard time about that memoir on uh, on the interview because apparently it's quite dream catchery. <laughs> well, the title comes from the central premise of it, which is all about catching the green lights of life. Right, what does that mean in terms of that's like a traffic light analogy, is it? Absolutely, and it's a metaphor that continues in the book, apparently, with events marked as a red light or an amber light or the aforementioned green light. I actually don't intend to take the piss out of that life philosophy told through traffic lights too much. As the cliff notes that are emerging, I haven't read it either. I really wanted to get my hands on a copy, but I just haven't had time yet this week. But the cliff notes that are emerging are by turns delectable and devastating. How much do you know about Matthew McConaughey, Dolph? Next to nothing. I just love him as an actor, like fucking everyone. Um, but I don't know anything about him as a person. Did you know that the first words he ever said on screen in 1993 for a film called Dazed and Confused are... All right, all right, all right. That's where it comes from. No, is that... Oh, I, I always wondered where that catchphrase came from. I think I assumed it was from How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Yes, I think that was my entry level, like most millennial women, to Matthew McConaughey, followed closely by his incredible cameo in Sex and the City. And then I think I weaned myself onto the harder stuff. But like all millennial women, I think he will be in my heart forever after watching him in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. I call bullshit. I love that film. He's quite like Mel Gibson in What Women Want in that film, isn't he? He's got real Mel Gibson vibes before Mel Gibson got problematic. Sort of very much pre The Passion of Christ, etc. Yes. God, that was such a... Those were the last great rom-coms, I think. That like Nancy Myers, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days... That was the last time I really loved watching those rom-coms. So my favourite analysis of green lights that I have read so far is by Elle Hunts, who writes, With green lights, his love letter to live in, McConaughey attempts to answer these questions and others, such as why he never puts a G on the end of living. Because, he says, life's a verb. 
Green Lights is not a memoir, though it tells true stories from his life in chronological order. Nor is it an advice book. It is an approach book, bringing together McConaughey's insights from 35 years of writing journals and more of collecting bumper stickers. McConaughey's parents... Now this I thought was really quite fascinating about his upbringing. McConaughey's parents divorced twice and married thrice to each other. His father broke his mother's finger four times to get her out of his face. What? He later died from a heart attack mid-intercourse, as he'd always said he would. Yes, writes McConaughey, he called his shot all right. At dinner one Wednesday night, his father asks for more potatoes. His mother calls him fat. His father overturns the table. His mother breaks his nose with the phone receiver while calling 911. She pulls out a 12-inch knife. His father grabs a 14-ounce ketchup bottle. They circle each other, him slashing her with sauce, dodging her knife. Their gazes meet, mum thumbing the ketchup from her wet eyes. They drop to their knees, then to the bloody ketchup-covered linoleum kitchen floor and made love. A red light turned green. This is how my parents communicated. That is <laughs> crazy. My God, I've just realised my microphone isn't on and I have been recording the whole of this episode so far through my humble earphones. I am so sorry, listeners, for the audio quality so far. I can assure you it will radically improve since I have now located my microphone, which is directly in front of me. Do you know what that reminds me of, Panda? Just switch this on. Yeah, very fair. Anyway, on we go. I, I really do want to read that now because I find the children who grow up in those kinds of households and the effect that it has on them so fascinating. It's like Ruby Wax in her interviews and in her memoirs, she talks about growing up in a house, not exactly like that, but where there was that level of intensity between her parents. And it must have such an enormous like effect on your obviously psyche, but spirit as well as a child growing up around that. I think it either goes two ways when you have parents like that, doesn't it? You either emulate them or you turn into what Matthew McConaughey appears to be, which is a cheesy, breezy, dream catcher kind of guy. Yeah, exactly. Here's another bit that I thought you might enjoy. Truth is like a jalapeno. The closer to the root, the hotter it gets. Ooh. <laughs> it feels a little bit like something David Brent might have framed on his office wall. It's probably why, as you've mentioned, him, he might have the piss taken out of him. Um, which is why I love Elle Hunt's piece about it so much, actually, because it's not like snidey. Um, mm. It's uh, a sort of lightly jovial, um, but also fascinating. Here's another bit. As Hollywood's go-to rom-com guy, McConaughey is at first unbothered by the fact he is a critical write-off. Do you remember he was considered like really lightweight? It's kind of interesting now because we so don't think of him like that now. No. He says, I enjoyed making romantic comedies and their paychecks rented the houses on the beaches I ran shirtless on. <laughs> in July 2005, he meets his future wife, embraces family life and becomes increasingly unsatisfied by his parts. He tells his agent, no more rom-coms, and he waits. He gets offers of 5 million, 8 million, 14.5 million for two months' work. He turns them down. For nearly two years, he refuses to give the industry what it wants from him. And one day he is discovered again. 
The offers come in droves, almost as money as after A Time to Kill in 96, from Linklater, Soderbergh, Scorsese. While shooting The Wolf of Wall Street, McConaughey thumps his chest and hums to relax before each take. Leonardo DiCaprio suggests he do it in the scene. That is one of the most iconic bits from that film as well, isn't it? So strange. Yeah, I remember reading that that was improvised and I couldn't believe it because it does conjure something really menacing and tribal that is at the heart of that film and that world. Absolutely. Despite lack of interest from directors and financiers, McConaughey perseveres with making Dallas Buyers Club and wins an Oscar for it. He's offered the part of Marty Hart in True Detective, holds out for Rustin Cole and gets it. It was my favourite thing on TV, he says, still is. McConaughey is as fulfilled as he's ever been. He has flipped the script, tipped the scale. They are calling it the McConaissance. Ever wonder who came up with that? He did. At Sundance <laughs> in 2013, McConaughey had told one reporter that another reporter had told him, knowing that it would stick. He figured he needed a bumper sticker. <laughs> he does talk in bumper stickers. It's like premium Southern charm, isn't it? He says he loves bumper stickers and he actually likes to run them together as all one word. I'm really down with his Southern woo-woo. I think it's what we need right now. And a listener, you mentioned WTF. A listener also recommended his podcast episode with Tim Ferriss. I haven't listened to it yet, but I am going to, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Speaking of good old fashioned charm, I was really intrigued to read about the slow browser, slow with multiple W's dot ML, which aims to reduce your broadband speed to a 90s modem pace. Oh, wow, that's so interesting. I was actually talking to someone the other day about 90s modems and we were reminiscing on using your parents' dial-up and the sound of your parents' dial-up. And do you remember that you would have your Nokia next to the computer and then when you would hear coming from the speaker, it would mean that someone was about to text you and it was so exciting. It was the most exciting noise in the world. It really was. So why have they ascertained this is something that people want? Is this part of the grand slowing down blocking your internet, blocking websites, making tech less accessible to us sort of thing. The new Luddite. Well, it's. Mm. I think it's probably more of a gimmick because it's a toy web server created by a hacker named Terence Eden, who lives in London. And I think it's. I think he's more making a point than suggesting that it might actually be functional because it probably would drive people a little bit nuts. But I did find the premise of it really interesting. So it loads as slow as humanly possible, quite literally humanly possible. So he writes, it is deliberately set to be about as fast as an adult human can read. Why do you need your pages delivered faster than you can read? Can slowing things down make the web calmer and less distracting? Will it become a more thoughtful place to engage in dialogue? That sounds nice, he writes. About 20 characters a second is as fast as the average person can read. Why transmit information any faster? Nowadays, we want everything instantly, but sometimes it is nice to have delayed gratification. I must confess that I tried to load slow.ml and I got bored of waiting for it. It really does load exceptionally slowly. Mm. But I am a big fan of reintroducing delayed gratification into mm. our friction-free world. Do you think it will take off? Or if not this specifically, do you think 
thing is, is I just can't imagine why anyone would choose a slower modem, even though I understand bigger picture. Also, it's it's just that thing that you articulated so well once in one of our conversations where you said it, it seems counterproductive that we keep developing software basically to help us get off software. It's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing now, isn't it? Yeah. Are we needing to slow down because the software's got too fast? And is that drive to slow down in turn going to make us more obsessed with efficiency? Because it's all it's all just about speed, isn't it? Well, it's about speed and it's about surplus, abundant gratification. So if you're really looking at the specifics of psychologically why someone would want a pace of life where they appreciate things more or they savor things more. I don't think using software that takes that makes things load slower helps. I think basically what those practices are are the, the practices we already know. It's mindfulness, it's being rooted in reality, it's being you know spending the majority of time away from screens, feeling things and doing things away from a screen it's you know instead of ordering clothes or ordering food online with a slow modem probably what we should do is order less clothes or make dinner rather than ordering it you know that's a shit example but like it just doesn't feel it just feels like a facsimile of a solution Ooh, I like that phrase thing it's not a really shit example because what you're what you're talking about is this friction-free world and actually how that can be counterproductive. And it's something I write about in my book. Sorry to do that ghastly thing, but otherwise I do. I am just about to plagiarise myself. So in the issues of transparency, I wrote it there first. But it's this idea that Alan de Botton looked at in the Monk debates, which is this debate with kind of four thinkers that happens once a year where he was talking about kind of exterior versus interior progress. So the exterior mm. progress is that we have this increasingly friction-free life where things are fast and easy and slick. But what's the kind of impact on us inside of that day-to-day -day life of having no hurdles? And he says it means that when we don't have those small kind of frustrations that are just part, naturally part of our lives, yeah. we become kind of incapable of dealing with larger hurdles. And so losing our car keys, for example, becomes this massive problem because we're, or we see it as this massive problem because we're not used to anymore this like litany of daily irritants that was just like, life 20, 30 years ago. And I think about that so often when we have conversations like this. Incidentally, because I think whenever we have conversations about like a surfeit or a surplus, it's obviously really important to contextualize. And as does Terence when he's when he's writing about the modem, that this is a privileged problem to have as it is where there's anything where we have a surfeit of choice because tons of people don't have mega fast internet. It's easy to access that in cities um, and it's also very expensive, which means people on tighter budgets in rural areas aren't going to have that problem of a surplus of information. Not everyone is living in the age of overload. It's always, I think, important that we remind ourselves of that. While we're speaking about the 90s, Panda, I wanted to share something I've seen online that I think people have found funny but I actually more than anything just found so encouraging and 
inspirational and brilliant. Jessica Bateman tweeted, Hello and good morning. My favourite new thing I found on the internet is Tony Mortimer from East 17 discovering literature during lockdown. And then she's done four screenshots of his journey. So he begins in May. Finally coming to the end of reading my first ever novel, lol. Such a small yet huge achievement. I've already chosen the next nine books. I hope you're all staying safe. Lockdown life, reading bookworm. He then updates us in June. Just finished reading my 28th book of lockdown, Literacy Lunacy, Reading Addiction. I hope everyone is keeping well and safe out there. July. Currently attempting to start my first ever novel. It'll probably end up being a colouring book, but we have to aim high. Have a beautiful day, whatever you're doing, stay safe. And then finally, in October, majorly fallen down a huge rabbit hole with this new writing lark. Never knew there was so much involved. Plot arcs, character arcs, structures. I've read 63 books, loving it. Hashtag taken over my life, hashtag literature. I just fucking love this for so many reasons, because as someone who has like definite intellectual insecurity, I've spent so much of my life worrying about seeming smart or what people will think of me if it seems like I'm coming to a book too late or I'm coming to an idea too late. And I think it's really in my younger life made me very self-conscious in a way that I'm quite ashamed of now. So I think that there's something so inspirational about this person who discovered reading a few months ago, was unashamed about that, threw himself into it, expressed such passion for it, and then tried it out himself. It drives me mad when I hear people talking about writing as a craft or an art form that only belongs to certain people or you need certain qualifications for or you need to have read a certain amount of books or specific authors to try. And I just loved this, this story in four tweets and it made me very happy. Oh, I'm so glad you shared that. And that makes me really optimistic, actually, for a slightly different reason, which is that he presumably is in his 40s. He's actually, he's 50. So that makes me really optimistic that I could discover a hobby age 50 that I will absolutely love and that will, by the sounds of it, completely change my life. Yeah, exactly. And also just a reminder that that you always have the freedom to express enthusiasm about something. It doesn't, you know, what other people's opinions of that is was sort of really none of your business. But if you want to be bright eyed and bushy tailed about something, you totally can be. I've got two questions for you. Number one, what was the first novel that he read? What was his first ever novel? And number two, has he got a book deal for his own writing project yet? Well, maybe there's an outside chance that Tony Mortimer listens to the high-low and then he will... You will let us know. Oh, speaking of which, thank you, Banana Rama, for confirming on Instagram that you do listen to the Hilo. And thank you, Nigel Did Slater. They? Yeah, and thank you, Nigel Slater, for your Instagram post in which you said you were whiling away a Sunday afternoon while listening to the Hilo on Spotify. Shut up. Oh, my goodness. I need to get back onto Instagram to see these things. I know, I know. It was, uh, it was a golden weekend for the Hilo. Instantly, I am a massive fan of E17. At the time, I was more of a take that fan, but I now, I cannot but get delirious with happiness when I hear E17. So we're actually gonna play this episode out with one of my favorite E17 songs. And you'll have to wait till the end of the episode to see which one that is. 
Unsurprisingly, the biggest talking point this week has been the forthcoming election in the States. Can you believe it's next week? Does it feel like four years to you that he's been in? Four long old years. November the 3rd, I am so worried about the morale of American citizens. Nay, actually the world, the morale of the world, the collective mental health, if he gets in again. So crossing my fingers for everyone who can vote that it makes a difference. Back on domestic shores, the shocking and disgusting news emerged from our own government last week that despite the wealth gap being larger than ever during the pandemic, the government will not be paying to feed 1.4 million chronically deprived children in the UK. There do seem to be slightly different numbers on this, by the way. Um, The BBC says 1.3 million children claimed for free school meals in 2019. Marcus Rashford, who has been an incredible campaigner, the Man United footballer, Marcus Rashford, he says it's 1.5 million children um, outside of term time who claim for free meals. So there are a variety of statistics around that. Like abortion in the States, school meals have become a partisan issue, which is just so unthinkable when you consider what it's actually about, with the Tories refusing to capitulate despite rising pressure from Marcus Rashford's campaign. His campaign for the government to pledge 20 million a week to school meals outside of term time has been backed by over 100 restaurants, councils, and almost a million members of the public. And this looks like it's gonna be Rishi Sunak's legacy, which commentators have called his Margaret Thatcher poll tax moment. We have signed Marcus's petition, which we will share in the show notes and on our Twitter at The Hilo Show, you can also find a link to that. And we will be pledging all of our merchandise sales for the whole of November to Fair Share, which collects surplus fit for purpose products from the food and drink industry and delivers it to organisations working with disadvantaged people, including breakfast and after school clubs. Other charities include Feeding Britain, a charity which has partnerships in 16 areas in the UK. Its vision is a UK where no one goes hungry. Kitchen Social, which is the Mayor's Fund for London programme and is the largest provider of food for children in London during the school holidays. The Trussell Trust, which supports a nationwide network of food banks and provides emergency food and support to people locked in poverty. They can also help you locate your local food bank to make a donation. And Magic Breakfast, which is a registered charity that delivers free healthy breakfast foods to UK primary schools with more than 50% free school meals. We will share that list of charities in the show notes and on our Twitter page. And a reminder, you can shop our merchandise at thehiloshop.com. So come by berets, jumpers, notepads. What else do we sell? I always forget this. Tote bags. Everyone needs a good tote bag. T-shirts, jumpers, telescopes, lawnmowers, sailboats. From the mailbag this week, I have an online community. I think you're going to really enjoy this, Dolly. It's called Hard to Forget, which was created by a group of young women to celebrate the hard to forget moments of sex, love and everything in between. Originally born out of a WhatsApp group chat, writes one of the founders, we soon realised that we weren't the only ones going through unforgettable, often laughable and sometimes painful romantic experiences. We often reshare stories submitted by our followers, as well as creating our own definitions and memes. As we can't get wasted wearing minimal clothing in a nightclub this year, we're celebrating Halloween a little differently by encouraging our followers to submit modern day ghost stories. That's a bit topical, Dolly. You can submit via their extremely cool website, hardtoforget.co, or their Instagram page, at hardtoforgetcollective. 
Take a look at the page, Dolly. I think you'll appreciate it. Oh, I like this one. There's a picture of Lizzo carrying a microscopic handbag. Tiny, looks like a doll's house handbag. And it says, carrying around the time I have for fuckboys. <laughs> <laughs> From people who were ghosted over WhatsApp and even at the doorstep, we've heard it all, they write. We'd love to hear stories from the Hilos listeners. And so they are asking if you have any ghosting stories to submit them to their page. So off you go, do your worst, and then we might read out some of them next week. This week, surprisingly, we had lots of listeners write in about their experiences of hugging cows, which Pandora mentioned last week as an apparent new wellness trend. We had this email from a cow hugging listener. I've been visiting my local cow sanctuary for five years now. To clarify, this is a sanctuary and charity where cows and the other animals are rescued from slaughter or the dairy industry. That aside, the time I've spent with the cows has a hugely calming effect on me. I instantly feel as though I'm on holiday, as the atmosphere is untroubled and quiet. It really is a wonderful experience. Just to add, I wouldn't advise anyone approach a cow in a field to have a quick cuddle. Well, this advice was reinforced by another listener's email. Regarding your story on cow hugging, I have a flatmate from Rotterdam who is indeed partaken in cow hugging. When I asked her about the experience, she said she had a fantastic day. However, I had a very different experience with cow hugging when I attempted to give a cute fluffy Highland cow a cuddle while I was at Glasgow University. Although my friends warned me not to get too close, I completely ignored them and slowly but assertively walked up to any cow I saw to embrace it. It was all going so well. I began with a simple stroke and got confident enough to go in for a hug. The only problem was, mid-hug, the cow lifted his head up and its horns went up my dress and got caught on my knickers. (laughs) (laughs) Support for the high-low comes from Stripe and Stare. Comfortable, sustainable knickers and loungewear for which, and not just because the sponsor ordered, Dolly and I have been long-term fans of. In fact, like most days, today I am wearing a pair. Not only are they the most comfortable knickers in the world, they are 95% biodegradable. Using sustainably sourced beechwood fibres, Stripe and Stairs production uses 95% less water than cotton and is proven to be up to three times softer. As well as this truly innovative approach, Stripe and Stare have also launched a subscription service for the Undie Obsessive. Sign up and get monthly knickers delivered through your letterbox so that you too can be like Justin Bieber. I think he uh, gets new underwear very regularly. (laughs) That is the celebrity rumour. Stripe and Stare also make loungewear and nightwear, all in the same super soft, sustainable fibres, perfect for working from home. I have a tie-dyed tracksuit, which can also masquerade as a pyjama because it's quite thin, which means technically I need, nor do, ever take it off. Get yourself a 20% discount by entering high 20 high 20 online at stripeandstare.com or shop the collection at international retailers such as Shopbop, Selfridges, Bloomingdale's and Revolve. Thank you very much to Stripe and Stare. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What have you been enjoying this week, Panda? I am loving the wave of mini books at the moment. They are so satisfying. I read Curtis Sittenfeld's collection of three short stories over the course of a few bath times this week called Help Yourself. And I think it, I think it might be my new favourite book length, which possibly is testament to me being lazy, time poor, tired, not sure, but I just don't think I could sit down right now with an 1,000-page book. I've been a massive fan of Curtis's writing since she wrote her first book, Prep, which, my God, must have come out 15 years ago now. She's best known for American Wife and Rodham, and what I love about her writing is she always responds to larger conversations so astutely and concisely with her fiction, and I think that's much harder to do with fiction. With non-fiction, you can obviously be quite on the nose about it, but with fiction, you have to be a bit cleverer about it. And I think that's why Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid is so good, because it does that so well. Yeah. Her narratives are propelled by her characters rather than her tone, which is something else I think is really clever. You never actually know what the narrator is feeling. It's always done through this very spare but specific character development. The three stories, I think, go in order of strength. White women, lol is definitely the strongest and it feels so timely. It's about a woman named Jill who seeks to atone for a racist microaggression which went viral on Facebook. Creative Differences is about a young artist who refuses to capitulate to the whims of a patronising bunch of older marketing execs. And Show But Don't Tell is about the competition between a bunch of writers on a postgraduate programme and how the nature of good writing is subjective. Oh, I'd love to read that one. I love stories that examine the pretensions and competitions between writers, particularly on those sorts of competitive programmes. It's why I think some of the best episodes of Girls took place when she was at Iowa doing the writers' workshop. It's when she was at her most fragile, most obnoxious and most wonderful. <laughs> I really recommend this book for anyone who's who enjoys short stories, which very much read like a response to topical social issues surrounding race, class, motherhood and art. She really doesn't shy away from the kind of sticky, nuanced subjects and she just delivers it with absolute poise. Delicious. Dolly, what delicious things have you been reading? I read The Most Delicious Book and it was everything that I needed. I read Claudia Winkleman's new book, Quite, which I suppose is a kind of essay, handbook, tiny bits of memoir, not that much memoir, but so much of her and her brain and her heart and humour in it. And I cannot tell you how therapeutic I found it. I didn't realise how much I needed to read the words of a self-assured woman who ostensibly doesn't seem to give too many fucks about what people think about her. And it really reminded me of those Nora Ephron essay collections that she wrote in later life, where it's all kind of 
didactic and assertive and exacting and the theorizing on life and the polemicism on life and more lifestyle, I think, exaggerated to comic effect, but really that kind of tone is just so comforting. I can't explain, like just having Claudia Winkleman tell me what to drink, what to wear, how often to get my fringe cut, what I should be looking for in a boyfriend, when I should be dumping a boyfriend. These just like lists and ruminations, they just made me feel so reassured and comforted. And I think it's because there's obviously so much choice in life now. And as you get older, it feels like there are all these versions of yourself and lives you could live that you say goodbye to and that can just like fill you with stress and worry and I've always been a very FOMO-y person and just reading the words of a woman who says this is the best way I have found to live life it is heaven I could not have loved this book more what made me really love Claudia Winkleman is she is I can't remember what hair brand you know, a shampoo, Pantene, head and shoulders, something like that. She's an ambassador for a hair care brand. And there's an advert, don't know if it's still on TV, came out maybe a year ago, where she would read out what people thought of her. And it was, you could just tell that she was so comfortable with herself. And the way she read out these tweets about her, she, I remember the advert starts with, Claudia Winkleman is so annoying. And she sort of just, looks out either side from under her fringe and then reads the next one. And she's quite quirky, isn't she? This book really is an ode to imperfection and eccentricity. And she talks a lot about how important it is to cultivate a rich sense of self beyond surface indicators. And a lot of it's about lifestyle stuff. A lot of it's about what to wear, why to wear black, a recipe for omelette and homemade chips and why it's the best thing you can eat. Surprisingly, reasons why she believes everyone should play bridge, which she's obsessed with. <laughs> but really there's a lot in it, which is about her findings in the realm of happiness, the pursuit of happiness, the quality of your personal relationships, the kind of friendships you should nurture, how you should communicate with your family. And she just seems like a well-adjusted woman with this vast intellect that she wears so lightly. She's so fucking clever, Claudia Winkleman, and she never, ever lets people know how clever she is because she doesn't use it as a way of asserting herself. I had no idea that she studied art history at Cambridge and that she is a passionate art historian. I am woefully uninformed about art and she peppers through the book these miniature love letters to artworks what artworks you can see in london for free what artworks opened her eyes to art on a school trip to italy when she was a teenager why she thinks standing in front of great works of art is the most enriching thing that you can do she's just curious and clever and charming and sexy and she's got great taste and she knows what she's talking about she's confident she feels like a safe pair of hands when you're listening to her but beyond all of that she just doesn't take herself too seriously and increasingly in life I just yearn for that above all else I think it is the highest virtue and she does it so convincingly and elegantly if this sounds like my own love letter to Claudia Winkleman it is I'm going to play a clip of one of my favourite 
parts of the book, which is at the beginning, when she tells her readers all the reasons you should look out for for leaving a boyfriend. He can't get a cab. Yeah, you're probably right. It's time to leave. I have a taxi app, but I don't have much signal. Do you know the Wi-Fi code here? Mm. Why don't we just see if we can find a taxi on the street? It's only a slight drizzle and your heels aren't that high. Or we could just wait and see if someone else is leaving this party soon. And they could give us a lift if they're going in the same direction. Yeah, let's just stand in the corridor here near the kitchen and see if anyone looks like they might be getting their coat. Um, come again? What? Pardon? Hello? Have you broken into another language? See you, dude. Night-night. It's been fun flirting with you. I had thought you were cute. You made a joke about canoes, and I believe this could be a thing. You're a bit wet, though. A bit slow on the uptake. Please don't call me. In fact, uh, can you delete me from your contacts? Will I be going back to yours so you can play with my knicker elastic for 30 minutes? <laughs> I don't think so. Look, I don't like a strong man. I could easily lift up this table. I'm really good at fighting. Did that bloke look at you funny because I'll have him? Let me get that door for you, babe. Look, I almost took it off its hinges. But I do want someone to get me home or back to his with some urgency, with some speed, with a certain amount of vigour. It's raining. You stay right here. I'll grab us a cab. Ring-a-ding-ding. Hot, cool, assured, right there. Back to yours for a tequila on the rocks and an old cast cracker covered in primula. Why not? I might even let you have a go on my boobs. The left one is award-winning. Other pieces of advice on why she thinks you shouldn't stay with him. If he doesn't have any friends, if he believes in star signs, if he has an opinion about your appearance, if he gives you anything with a plug as a present, if he owns and uses eye cream, if he says he'll babysit his own children, if he talks about <laughs> his career but your job, or if he's the best looking man in the room, which uh, she says is a dangerous mistake to marry that man. There is something just like <laughs> of the eccentric about her that I just seven love. Half, I, love I love it. Like I think she's it's definitely it's not a performance, it's definitely who she is, but she's just decided and I think it might even be some sort of politicized or anarchic decision on her part that she has made a decision to amplify the parts of her that are a bit wonky and it's just gorgeous. It's an absolute inspiration for the rest of us to just inhabit who you are. Oh, I'm sure that it's a, a decision of sorts. Even the title, I think, is brilliant because it's a homage to being equivocal, isn't it? Not totally. Yeah, exactly. Not totally anything. Exactly. Yeah. I'm now going to play a clip from the audiobook uh, from one of the strangest chapters of the book, which is just two pages long. <laughs> which is entitled Squirrel Etiquette, where she gives a 10-point step-by-step guide as to how to feed a squirrel in a park. Six. If someone is bending down and already connecting, his word, not mine, with a squirrel, then this animal is absolutely out of bounds. Don't approach, don't make the squirrel noise, and let them have their moment. This is very important. Seven. If there is a cluster of squirrels, you cannot take them all. Don't be greedy, and although being kind and generous with nuts is good, another family might be right behind you, and you don't want them to be too full up. 8. Saying that, if there's nobody about and it started to drizzle, let them feast. 9. If there is a squirrel and pigeon cluster, then be aware the birds might get a little overexcited and start pecking the squirrels. Please make sure that you aim the nut close to the squirrel and as far from the birds as possible. 
I don't want to get too specific here, but a pigeon will depart if an arm is lifted with some force. Scares a bird, not a rodent. This has been tried and tested. 10. Finally, enjoy your squirrel time and please never make fun of them. Don't call them rodents, they don't like it, or heavy set or aggressive. They are proud mammals and desire your respect. Oh, that's so marvellous. Thank you very much, Claudio Enkelman, for writing and reading that. I have also fallen in love this week, Dolly, with my new favourite podcast, You're Wrong About. Oh, I haven't heard of that one. What's what's that? It's an American podcast by investigative reporters Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall. It's very popular in the States, which reconsiders a person or event that they believe has been miscast in the public eye. Oh, that's a great idea. So what... What figures do they cover as an example? One example is the murder of Kitty Genovese, as discussed by Malcolm Gladwell, actually, in his most recent book, Talking to Strangers, which is basically a debunking of the myth of the bystander effect. So the bystander effect is a psychology theory that states that people are less likely to go to someone's aid if they think or they see that there are lots of people in the vicinity. And the murder of Kitty Genovese was a very famous murder case of the States in the 60s. Um, Kitty Genovese was a young woman who was killed in 1964. And the story sort of went that over 30 people heard her being murdered or witnessed it from their flat block, but didn't do anything about it. And as Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall in You're Wrong About, kind of debunk actually that didn't happen at all and therefore the whole kind of bystander effect which is a really depressive depressing psychological phenomenon is completely flawed another fascinating primer to the series is the episode on the stepford wives the commonly held idea is that the stepford wives were robots but actually ira levin's book had much in common with the real united states in the 1960s this manic sort of optimism masking the crises of suburban housewives which betty frieden writes about in the feminine mystique always reminds me of betty draper in mad men january jones encompasses that type mm. of woman so well don't mm. you think and And it basically, that kind of crisis was in tandem with the pharmaceutical phenomenon of Valium, which was marketed as this extremely safe, beneficial product by the Purdue Pharmaceutical Company, who then went on to manufacture OxyContin, which led to the opioid crisis in the States. So there's this really brilliant analysis of the book, but also weaving in cultural aspects to make it something that's actually really telling about where America was at that time and where women were at that time, rather than it being this quite abstract sort of horror book. Mm. Did you know Ira Levin also wrote Rosemary's Baby? Oh, no, I had no idea. The biggest deep dive they've done was into Princess Diana. There are actually three episodes on that. And a lot of it is extremely funny for the way in which an enthusiastic Michael presents the cultural chasm of discussing Britain in the 1970s. He'll be reading out something about her and he'll be like, she played something called netball. (laughs) The Courtney Love episode is next on my list. I'm really excited about that You have more than convinced me. I've just subscribed on the podcast app. Have you been binging on any truthiness of your own? I have. I've binged all but the final episode of Sarah Pascoe's stunning new show, Out of Her Mind. 
it is billed as a sitcom, which in many ways, I suppose it is in terms of the story arcs of each episode. But there are so many things that make it so unique and artful. In fact, it's hard to explain, but the whole show is a sort of deconstruction of narrative format, uh, both of TV and entertainment. So as she narrates and acts through the episodes, she makes comments on the TV show as she goes. And beyond that, it kind of looks at deconstructing how all of us in in our minds make ourselves the protagonists of our own lives. Mm. Like Zadie Smith says, we're all trapped in our own flesh cages. Oh, I'm loving the sound of this. I honestly think you are going to adore this show. It's also just so unusual for a sitcom in that it's this sensory feast. It's so stimulating. There's stock animation, graphics, incredible costumes, surreal set design, beautiful use of music. Emmy the Great scores the series. So it's just really auteured. And the cast is also pitch perfect. For example, Juliette Stevenson plays perfectly a sort of overcritical white wine swigging mother who's perpetually on an exercise bike in the kitchen. (laughs) The stories look at the joys and the anxieties of womanhood, both on a surface level and then also on a much deeper scientific biological level, which is obviously something Sarah is known for and loved for in her comedy. And it has very tender moments in it, as well as being very funny, one of which made me cry. This is not a plot spoiler to say. It's a speech that she makes to a teenage boy who is her imagined child at the exact age he would have been had she not had an abortion when she was a teenager. And I've never... Wow. And I've never seen that dialogue happen so directly. Obviously, I've read a lot about women who think about who that child would have been and who contemplate the tension between knowing it was absolutely the right decision for them and gratitude that that this choice was available to them, but also contemplating what that other life could have been had they not made that choice. Mm. And, and the huge amount of emotions that can throw up, even if the woman knows it was absolutely the right decision, it just... It was so moving and yeah, I just, I I just loved it. I know I'm going to do what I did when I watched Feel Good and I'm going to finish episode six and then go straight back to episode one because there's so much to enjoy. It's warm and weird and so, so clever. The BBC have been commissioning some really interesting and like things that really push the boundaries at the moment, I think. Yes, I've really noticed that they, the BBC have been commissioning programmes that do really test these structures and boundaries of storytelling. I suppose the pressure's really on at the moment because aside from telly and books and audio, what, what do people have really in the way of entertainment? You know, it's such a like faff and quite muddly knowing where you can and can't go. So yeah. most people just aren't. So it's kind of down to... BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Amazon, Netflix. Yeah. Isn't it? Have I missed any big streaming platforms? Those are the ones I toggle between. And this week, I watched two brilliant documentaries on the BBC, completely different in subject matter. The first I want to tell you about is about the artist Maggie Hambling. (gasps) Love her. 
She, for anyone unfamiliar, Maggie is this legendary figure now in her 70s and one of the most provocative and evocative multi-talented artists whose work considers love, death, sex and nature, the animal kingdom, the biggest themes in life really. And this show was such a beautiful homage to her singular nature and the singularity of her art, as well as being very funny. She's a hilarious character. She never stops smoking for one second. And I remember on Grace and Perry's art club show earlier this year, they actually had to explain that she would only appear on the show if she could smoke constantly, which is really <laughs> unusual now on your screens, especially in inside spaces. And I think my favourite thing about her is she has what I think of as a resting wry face, often answering a question with just a twitch of her lip or a flare <laughs> of her nostril. The director, Randall Wright, made this documentary over two years and she sometimes very much tolerates him and you can tell she thinks that some of his questions are just completely facile. Like when he asks her what her legacy is. My legacy, Randall? A few fag ends on the floor. <laughs> and when he asks her if she thinks philosophically about death, as she's known for these really immersive, moving portraits of loved ones and friends as they pass away or immediately after they've died and she bites back, I never think philosophically. <laughs> her partner is this wonderful artist, Tori Lawrence, who's so warm and compassionate. And when she's asked what sustains Maggie, she replies, whiskey cigs and enormous energy. She's also a very political figure. She's fascinating on queerness and the way it's portrayed in art, um, especially during the 60s and the 70s when it was obviously much more taboo. And she's probably best known for her controversial sculpture that she created um, in memory of Benjamin Britten in Albrook, who was a famous queer figure. She protested against Enoch Powell and his famous Rivers of Blood speech. She's outspoken on climate issues. She very funnily went on to the art quiz gallery in the early 90s wearing a moustache to make the point that she was the only one of six guests to be a woman. And I think that all this stuff now is maybe like not that radical. I mean, like, you know, maybe still quite cool, but not that radical. But back in, back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it was extremely provocative and brave because she was also a mainstream artist. You know, she had shows at the National Portrait Gallery and she talks about being banned from a club in the 1960s. And there was this line that actually made me laugh out loud. She says, I was banned for dancing suggestively. Now, how does one dance unsuggestively, I would like to know. <laughs> Another documentary, which I've just started, it's a four-parter, and I was completely blown away by it. I've watched the first episode. It's called Enslaved with Samuel L. Jackson. It becomes immediately obvious that the most unbelievable amount of work went into it. It truly is the meeting of so many minds and so much research and so much heartache and love. I'm going to play the clip so that you can hear what it's about as it's much better in Samuel L. Jackson's words than me paraphrasing. My ancestors came from here. They were taken from Africa in chains to power the greatest wealth generating machine the world had ever known. During the slave trade, more than 12 million Africans were trafficked across the Atlantic to North and South America and the Caribbean. More than two million died en route. The Atlantic Ocean floor is one huge graveyard and 
a crime scene. Hey, Sam, how you doing, buddy? To tell this story, I've teamed up with DWP, Diving with a Purpose. Good morning, good morning. Out here in the high seas. Ready to get wet, baby? Some of the best underwater investigators in the world. Chris, you ready? All right, thanks for being here, Sam. I appreciate it. All right, bro. These divers are dedicated to bringing to light our ancestors' forgotten history. We are raising the voices of people who didn't have a voice, whose voices were also enslaved. We have to teach our young people where they came from. If we don't do it, no one will ever. We only talk about the ships that made it, but we never talk about the ones that didn't. The transatlantic slave trade existed for well over 400 years, involving more than 45,000 voyages from dozens of outposts along the African coast. To understand what happened and why, I'm enlisting the help of award-winning journalists Simka Jakubovic and Afua Hirsch. Time and thought was put into how to design this kind of inhumane arrangement. Let me get this straight. This is currency. One human being. England was involved in it. Portugal was involved in it. The Africans were involved in it. Right there, right there. That's a oh. task. Oh my god. Between us, we'll cross continents to piece together the beginnings of slavery. It's what it is. Man's inhumanity to man, and this is almost like the capital of it. What was really going on with the slave trade? It takes a dual narrative where Effua and Samuel go to the Atlantic coast in Africa after Samuel L. Jackson discovers that his ancestors come from Gabon, which housed one million slaves before they crossed the Atlantic. Meanwhile, off the Cornish coast, investigative divers, diving with a purpose, aim to liberate a tusk and a cannon from 108 metres deep into the sea. So it's this really moving excavation mission to try and find these tangible artifacts of slavery because there just aren't very many because these lives were considered dispensable, especially as Samuel L. Jackson says, these, these two million people that did not make it across the sea. One of the most powerful bits in the first episode is when Effua travels to Elmina Castle in Ghana, the first trading post on the West African coastline, which was built by the Portuguese in the 15th century. And her and Samuel visit this trading post where there is a dungeon underneath where the enslaved were kept. And there is a trap door on the bedroom floor of the commander where he could just reach down for women whenever he wanted. Effua says that her sixth great-grandfather was a Portuguese slave trader who married a local woman, probably, she suspects, against her will. So you have skin in the game, says Samuel. I have skin in the game she says. And in the documentary, they recreate the scenes of the slaves being held captive and they explain how they would have been arranged and how they would have been invited up and asked to perform a dance to see if their muscles were strong enough, if they were strong enough to be sold as chattel. And this was the era of enlightenment, one of the professors explains. And so the decisions were entirely rational. It wasn't to do with compassion that the slaves were packed with more space between them. They were packed not according to comfort, but according to how long they would stay alive. It's such heart and mouth stuff. And when 
Samuel L. Jackson visits Gabon, he finds this bank of oyster shells, 2.5 thousand acres of oysters, which was all that the slaves had to eat. So you have this kind of insane, like, relic of slavery. And the first time these people saw the ocean was the ship on which they left. Can you imagine how terrifying that is? They're being taken to this vast bank of water that they've never seen before. This tropical paradise, as the narrator says, or a gateway to hell. And on board as well were tusks and gold. And the tusks and gold were considered more important than the black lives also on ship. These, these tangible markers of how diminished and um, tortured these lives, these people were. I think it's a fascinating, ambitious and really confronting piece of programming. I cannot wait to watch that. And also what a brilliant pairing of hosts. Give us your last recommendations, doll. I'm going to do a very quick roundup of the podcasts I've listened to this week and loved. Dawn French on Table Manners, which includes a beautiful and strange story about meeting her now husband and the moment she knew he was the one for her. I loved Elvis Costello on the New Yorker Radio Hour, particularly his quite positive thoughts about music streaming platforms, which I found quite unusual, unusual for a musician. Yeah, it's really interesting, his thoughts on it. I also loved an archive interview with the psychologist Tim Leary on Fresh Air, an interview an interview conducted by Terry Gross in the 80s. Tim Leary is often He's referred... psychedelics, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. He's referred to as the father of the psychedelic movement. In 1960, he joined the faculty of Harvard at the Centre for Personality Research, where he analysed <laughs> the effects of psychedelics and personality. And as part of his research, he introduced LSD and other psychedelic drugs to many and also used many on himself. He said, you know, hundreds of times, hundreds and hundreds of times he has experimented with them himself. It's a short but fascinating interview. And I loved his thoughts on how the conditions in which we take drugs, either recreationally or medicinally, should be no more thoughtful than the conditions in which we entrust ourselves to another. Now, as far as the wisdom of preparing yourself for a good trip, it's plain old common sense. And the same rule works. And we used to laugh, you know, we're writing these manuals. All right, you should know what you're doing. You should uh, do it in a beautiful place. You should do it in a place where you're secure and comfortable. You should do it with people that you respect and love. You should do it with people that, if any worry comes along, will be able to guide you through it. Now, I'm not talking about LSD. I'm talking about life. I'm talking about making love. I'm talking about working. You should do all these things with this sense of preparation and setting and companionship. And you shouldn't do it alone unprepared, in a strange place where the vibrations can be unfriendly or police can be around, whether you're going to make love or whether you're going to take LSD or whatever. And finally, I loved Eva Wiseman's column in The Observer about her upcoming 40th birthday. I love Eva Wiseman. I'm so glad that she's back from her maternity leave. She is just my favourite columnist. And this article about this big birthday that's looming and 
the party that never was, the party she dreams of. I just adored and I am missing. I never thought that this would be the thing that I missed the most, but I am missing parties and big gatherings so, so much. So there was something that I found so nostalgic about reading Eva's words on what she misses about having a party. Never have I needed a party more. The month long lead up, the quiet texts from friends asking politely if I've invited their exes. The gorgeous anxiety of worrying absolutely nobody will come and then the day with its perfunctory hoovering and rearranging of shelves, the walking into an empty room again and again, attempting to see it as others might, the ceremonial bowling up of crisps, evening, the noisy hairdryer over the noisy record player, the lover-like laying of dress on bed, lamp lighting, a candle that threatens to burn down the bunting, and just when doubt kicks in about the very fine threads of friendship you've sewn across years and postcodes, the best music in the world, a doorbell right on time. It gets dark and someone's smoking inside. You lose control of the music around the time the hummus runs out and soon a girl will be shouting in your ear about love or buses. Because age is real, someone will mournfully leave then to pay a babysitter and their face will disappear ghost-like in an Uber window. At some point there are no more photos taken. And two people are slow dancing in the kitchen to Kermit's rainbow connection and the hem of your dress is wet so you tuck it into your tights. It's no surprise who's still there at dawn or who's part dead on the sofa when you're quietly decanting old drinks in the morning or who texts for your sister's number the following day or who orders a pizza with you when evening rudely returns. Ah, to know again the sweet ignorance of eating cake someone has blown on, the carefree joy of trying a stranger's cocktail the casual hello hug of someone you barely care for. Never have I needed a party more. Well, I wasn't missing big parties until I heard that. And now all I want is to be in your flat, too hot, hanging out the window, drinking some warm Sauvignon with Christmas baubles pressing into the back of my head. <laughs> One day, my darling, one day, and it will be all the lovelier. Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. You can write to us by emailing thehiloshow at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show. You can buy our merch at thehiloshop.com. All proceeds go to charity, 50% to Freedom Charity and 50% to Black Minds Matter. From November, 100% of our proceeds will be going to Fair Share. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Stay